period in history known as the Renaissance saw incredible works of art produced throughout Europe, but especially in Italy. And as the continent emerged from plagues and war, the sciences and the arts began to flourish like never before. And two of the foremost artists of the high Renaissance period, perhaps the two greatest apart from Leonardo da Vinci, were Raphael and Michelangelo, or if you want to be fancy, Michelangelo. Now, the two lived at the same time and were both amazing painters, sculptors, architects, and more. They were both revered by the people around them, and they both made numerous priceless works of art. But the two men were not fond of each other at all. In fact, it's fair to say that they were bitter rivals as they competed for the heart of their city. Why was this so? Well, even though the two men were both brilliant, they had vastly different approaches to their art and with how they lived their lives. Raphael was the quintessential socialite, a man about town. He wore the latest fashions, appeared at all the parties and posh events, and he lived a lavish lifestyle. Michelangelo, on the other hand, was pretty much the exact opposite. How many of you here are football fans? Anyone, how many of you here know who Bill Belichick is? All right, yeah. So picture Bill Belichick and you got Michelangelo, that curmudgeonly man who just kind of wears cut-off sweatshirts all the time. Um, that's Michelangelo. He could be prickly at times towards those who annoyed him. He was often unkempt in his dress, covered in the dust of whatever sculpture he was working on, and he could pretty much care less about the finery of Italian culture. In fact, he saw it as a distraction from the work to which he was called. Now, these were arguably the two greatest Renaissance artists, yet they had completely different approaches to life. Raphael followed the self-important way of the world and produced amazing works of art. Michelangelo found his importance in the work he was called to and also produced priceless marvels. And today, as we look at the next section of Ecclesiastes, I would submit to all of you that these two men represent the two paths that people can take in this world. A path of foolishness that lives life under the sun, as we've been studying, and a path of wisdom that seeks life above the sun. And we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 today, and so you can turn there in your Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we're going to look at the first 12 verses, verses 1 through 12. And it's my hope today that as we study this passage, we'll be reminded how easy it is to fall into foolish thinking. It is easy to fall into our eyes under the sun. But to be encouraged to continue to seek the Lord to keep us on the path of wisdom that leads to true life above the sun. So that is the goal for today. So as you turn to Ecclesiastes 7, I am going to pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you and praise you for who you are. We praise you that you are holy and righteous. You are all-powerful. You know everything, Lord. 
yet you are gracious and full of love and mercy for us, and we praise you and thank you for that. You sent your Son for us, and we thank you for him and that your wisdom is embodied in him. Lord, I pray that as we study your word now, that you would speak through me, that I would be wholly yielded to you, and that our hearts would be open to receive your truth and be transformed by it. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to look at this passage today in two sections. Pretty straightforward outline here. Two sections. We have wisdom's perspective and wisdom's presence. Verses 1 through 4 will be wisdom's perspective, and then verses 5 through 12 will be wisdom's presence. So we begin with wisdom's perspective. Now, if you know the Bible and you know Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, you also know that he wrote the book of Proverbs, at least the majority of it. And that's probably the scripture for which he's best known. And here in this book, written likely at the tail end of his life as he's reflecting on lessons that he's learned, as Pastor Tim taught in the first sermon, he reverts back to that proverbial literary style that he had become so famous for. Up to this point, it was wisdom literature, and now it's a specific type of wisdom literature known as a proverb. And he does some more of that spiraling technique that he's been doing all throughout, except now he puts it in the form of proverbs. And he reminds us of the same points that he's been making all throughout this sermon from the preacher. He tells us that life is brief. We will all die, every single one of us. And until then, things under the sun can be good, but they are ultimately fleeting. They are empty. And therefore, our hearts and minds should turn to what is above the sun right now. And so in the first four verses here, Solomon reminds us of the perspective of one who is wise, and he situates us, he puts us at a funeral as he gives these proverbial bits of wisdom. Let's read them together. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. How's that for some encouragement, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Let's all go home and just be cheery and glad. Now, Solomon has already made clear that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. He talked about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And now he seeks to help refine our perspective by juxtaposing, by, by putting side by side what is good versus what is better. And that's the first thing that I want us to see here. If, if I were you, I would go through these 12 verses, we only read the first four, and I would underline or circle each instance of the word better. Because Solomon is getting us to see that there are good things, but there are better things when we walk and live with wisdom. Now, Solomon isn't necessarily saying that the lesser things are bad, 
but he's giving us what is better in the eyes of wise living. And the first thing he says is better is a good name, a good reputation. And he then says that the house of mourning and sorrow are better than feasting, laughter, and mirth. Now, I don't have time, unfortunately, to dig into each one of these Proverbs, so we're just hitting the overarching themes here, okay? It's critical that we see that as throughout all the rest of this sermon, the reality of death is central to the wise perspective. We are all going to die. It is inevitable. Psalm 144 verse 4 says, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Psalm 90.12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. While death was used previously in Ecclesiastes to provide an impetus to seek wisdom, I'm going to die eventually, so I it's better that I live wisely than foolishly. It's an it's a impetus to seek wisdom. Now, Solomon uses death as the reality that we have to account for, that we have to be aware of, that we have to keep in view in order to have a wise perspective on everything else. You see the difference between those two things? If I don't keep my death in view, then I will have my perspective on everything else out of whack. Nice things and eating and drinking and being merry, they're not bad. In fact, we should enjoy them if the Lord blesses us with them. Again, go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. It talks about that. But we can't pursue those things as our central focus of life since they're all fleeting and empty in themselves. That's a wise perspective. Now, as we all know, this truth, this wisdom, is the exact opposite message from the one the world is sending us, right? That's not at all what the world says. The world says, live up your life, be happy, enjoy life, do everything that pleases you. And if I was a better preacher, I'd put some good song lyrics in right about now. Um, <laughs> So I'm just going to help use your imagination and put in, like, I don't know, whoever you want. <laughs> but the wise perspective says, this is the, a lie. This is deception. This is not truth. Those things are fine to a point, but they aren't all this world has to offer. In fact, those things are going to end. There's got to be more to it than that. Otherwise, what's the point? And so, when we have the reality of death in front of us, it helps to center our perspective so that we can have a proper perspective on all of life and orient our goals and standards and expectations through that lens. Without death in view, I'm out of whack. I don't have the right perspective, all right? We keep saying that over and over so that we really get the point, because that's the point Solomon's making. Anyone, anyone here ever been to, like, a carnival or a fun house? Yeah, you know, they have, like, all those crazy, distorted 
funhouse mirrors, you know what I'm talking about? They make you look all different shapes and sizes. Now, they show you, it's not someone else that they're showing, they show you, but they show a distorted version of you. And this is exactly what the mirrors of the world are constantly doing. They're giving us a distorted version of reality because the world ignores, not just ignores, it, it, it runs from, it flees from the inevitability of death and the empty nature of life under the sun. Therefore, a life lived constantly looking into the funhouse mirrors is deceived, is tricked. Listening to the message of the world, we can focus our mind on ourselves when that happens. Looking in the mirror, it just shoots it right back at us with some distortion. We get caught up in the pleasures of this world or the acquisition of what the world says is important. That's what happens when we get deceived by these mirrors. We'll foolishly pursue things as our highest end and ultimately wind up empty with nothing but despair and discouragement and doubt and death once they fade away. So Solomon keeps hammering this point home, proverb after proverb after proverb, because these funhouse mirrors can be really subtle sometimes. I mean, if we would honestly assess our hearts and our minds right now, I would guarantee you that every single one of us have some area of our lives where we are staring in one of those mirrors. It's distorted, it's out of whack, it's deceived. There's something that we're falling into, and that's why Solomon repeats this, so that we can seek the Spirit of God to show us and blow that fog away. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. How many of you know that, that our life is just a pilgrimage? You ever think of that? All we are are pilgrims on a journey. This is not our home. This is not where we belong. And if we think that we belong here, if we think that this is our home, then we're looking at a mirror and we're deceived. We've got to live in the depth of the reality of our passing from this world, our passing through this world, our eventual death, and considering what that means for us while we still live, while we are still journeying. Depth of character and perspective, those who do the will of God, those who seek the truth of God, they are marks of those who are avoiding the funhouse mirrors. I pray, Lord, that that would be each of us. But those areas of our lives where we're shallow, those areas of our lives where superficiality and instant gratification mark us, they are the telltale sign that we're looking in the mirror, that we're living in a funhouse. 
And you know who else lives in a fun house? Clowns. And I hate clowns. <laughs> They're creepy. They're foolish. Clowns are fools, right? That's what they do. They walk around with their big floppy feet and their, their faces. It's like, oh, I'm so happy all the time. I'm a clown. I don't want to be a clown. Do you want to be a clown? Solomon is seeking to get us to not live the foolish life of a clown. This is why Solomon says that weeping and mourning and a good name are better than laughter and feasting and nice things like perfume because they remind us of death's call on our lives and therefore help us to prioritize things so that when death comes, we can embrace it instead of living in fear of it, instead of clowning around hedonistically for our instant gratification. We can instead sagely prioritize and live with integrity and purpose. The day of death is better than the day of birth because paradoxically and, and ironically, death has far more to teach us about life than does birth. Death teaches us that life is to be lived to the fullest, but not for the sake of pleasure. Death ultimately shows us that we should live for the sake of the one who has given us life. Amen? Scripture says that Jesus is wisdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And that wisdom, all wisdom, is hidden in him, Colossians chapter 2. So scripture makes clear that it is only in Christ that we can stop living like a clown and live wisely. And it is only in Christ that we can actually have true life and overcome death. It's in Christ's perfect life, his, his death his atoning death on the cross for us, dying in our place, defeating death and sin, and rising again to life, that we can proclaim confidently, assuredly, with hope, that death has no victory. Death has no sting. Amen? And therefore, death goes from being our enemy and something that we should fear to being our ally in overcoming the traps of this world by keeping things in perspective so that we would enjoy the moment but not pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake, but pursue Jesus through all the things that life could distract us with. Are we getting this? Do we see this? I had the privilege of doing a funeral this past year for a dear brother of mine who went to be with Jesus. And this very sanctuary was packed with some of you who knew him and many of his friends and his family. And though my heart hurt to lose a friend and his loss is, is still deeply felt by the friends and family closest to him, I praise God that I can say that Rocco Consiglio, my brother, did not fear death. Yeah, sure, we don't like the idea of pain and dying. But he didn't fear death. But instead looked forward to being with Jesus and singing his praises forever. If you know Rocco, he loved to sing. 
and he looked forward to singing with all of his brothers and sisters to Jesus. Now, anyone who knows Rocco well knows that from the beginning of his life, through much of his journey, he lived life under the sun. But praise God that the Lord ultimately removed the lies and he showed Rocco true wisdom, true life in Jesus Christ as Rocco's master and king. And through the power of the Spirit, Rocco developed the perspective of wisdom and left the clown's life behind. So as we celebrated the life of Rocco, we mourned his loss. There was sorrow and grief, and there still is. But more than that, we praised our God that our brother is home. And the day of Rocco's death was far better than the day of his birth. And Rocco's good name shined forth to be a testimony to those who knew him as we somberly celebrated and praised our God for bringing our brother home. That is how it should be with the child of God. By the grace of God, as, as the Holy Spirit fills us and, and smashes the funhouse mirrors of our lives, we should not seek to escape death, but instead look it in the eye, recognizing the reality of it, and freely live life uninhibited by the fear of its claiming our earthly lives. So we're going to die. And I get to be with Jesus. Only as we face death and overcome it by faith in the one who's defeated it, Jesus Christ, can we begin to truly walk in the wisdom of God. Submitting to the control of the Lord in our lives and trusting in his plan and his purpose no matter what we may walk through. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Fear. No. Evil. Why? You can go through the whole psalm, Psalm 23. We have a good shepherd who leads us every step of the way. Revelation 12, 11, one of my favorite verses says, And they have conquered him, who? Satan, the enemy, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Men and women, when we start living this way, you know what happens? The devil quakes. Because we become a threat to his rule and his reign here. Because Christians who live without abandon, who do not fear death, they will tear down the lies that the enemy has worked so hard to further in this world. It's in Christ that we have life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Amen? In Philippians, Paul understood this. Paul got this as he sat in a jail cell. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He knew, yeah, 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 I got work to do. I'm going to do that work. And so it's better for me to remain here while I do the work because I got work to do and I got to work but he said but I can't wait to get home to Jesus so whenever he decides to take me <laughs> come Lord Jesus come 
Thomas Boston, a, a theologian, said, In the day of his birth, man, he, was born to die, but in the day of his death, we die to live. That is the wise perspective. So Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Wisdom's perspective destroys the funhouse mirrors of the world, bows to Jesus as king, and then stands up and lives fearlessly in the face of death whenever it may come, because death no longer has any sting on the child of God. Amen? Okay, that's the first part of the sermon. Now we're going to move on to part two and these last eight verses here. But that has to be the foundation upon which everything else is built. Recognizing who has victory. And so we've established wisdom's perspective. And now Solomon goes on and shows us wisdom's presence. Wisdom's presence. We look at verses 5 through 12. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools." Say not, why were the former, former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So again, we can't dive deep, but what I want us to see here is the theme that Solomon is seeking to show us. There's a singular theme through each of these verses, and that is the importance of being present right where the Lord has us. As we grow in wisdom's perspective, the next step is to grow in wisdom's presence, being right here, right now, trusting in my God as I go. Verses 5 through 10 here, they collectively teach us that fools, clowns, creepy people, they seek to run from reality, and they seek to control every aspect of their fleeting lives. Can I get an amen from my control freaks out there? Yeah, that's right. See, the wise embrace the reality of the moment and they live in the present, trusting in God's control, whereas clowns try to just laugh their way, control their way, joke their way, pleasure their way through it all. We've got to see here that our culture, and again, 
we're going back to battling the lies of the world. Our culture constantly spews a mindset of escapism. Getting away. Have you ever thought about that? Pretty much everything that our culture is doing is trying to get you to not think about where you are right now. All the pleasures of this world, all the lies and deception, all the things that we've got to have or we're told that we need to be, all the funhouse mirrors of prideful puffery, they're all designed to encourage us to escape from the reality of the moment and get lost in something or someone or somewhere else, anywhere but right here in the moment. In verses 5 and 6, Solomon says that listening to vain flattery is escaping from the reality of who we are and what we've done. It's escaping from our actual identity, either facing that or embracing that as a child of God. In verse 7, oppression, or in the Hebrew, better translated, extortion, is an escape from responsibility. I don't want to bear the responsibility of this, so I'm just going to steal And take advantage of those who can't stop me. Prideful impatience. I hate this one. In verse 8, is escapism from the way things actually are and wanting our gratification right now. Mm, That's a hard one, isn't it? Because that is big time what our culture is pushing. Instant gratification. Anger, in verse 9, is escapism from our inability to cope with the way we want things to be, but are not going that way. And so we get hurt over it, and instead of turning to the Lord, we turn to anger to try to fix it. We try to escape from the reality of that issue. Verse 10 shows us that nostalgia is nothing more than escaping from the present or the future and foolishly fixating on the past. Back in my day. Uh, Yeah, you're an old clown. (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but I have been guilty of every single one of these. Can I get an amen? amen? And my flesh is so easily tempted to give in to them when the reality around me isn't as I like it. I mean, the world holds that funhouse mirror up for me to see, and my inner clown wants to believe the lie. Well, it's, it's clear here. It's clear that we live in a broken world. Even, even an atheist will acknowledge that. But the mark of the world is to ignore that reality, ignore that brokenness, and seek to escape from it. To just put superficial band-aids on things that merely address symptoms instead of addressing root causes of the heart. Or to just ignore the brokenness altogether and clown around willfully oblivious to the reality around it. Wisdom's presence in our lives causes us to stop and reflect on the necessity of being present 
and to operate in the reality of a moment to address the true issues of our heart and the heart of those around us. Wisdom's presence calls us to stand and address the brokenness. Biblical faith doesn't seek to escape, but instead seeks to embrace and restore what has been broken. To see it to become something new altogether, a new creation. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. That's what Jesus died to defeat. And that's what our Heavenly Father wants for all of His children. Is to stand in the present and be an instrument of healing for this world. As the Lord transforms us and works through us. This is why Solomon ends in verses 11 and 12 by extolling the benefits of wisdom and says that it preserves the life of the one who has it. Why? Because wisdom points us to Jesus. And the key to living in wisdom's presence is submitting to Christ's mastery of our lives, his control at all times, walking in the identity of being a child of God. The world is constantly trying to get you to be anything other than that. Any other identity that you can think of, the world says, yeah, be that. The world does not say, be a child of God. And that is the only identity that our God calls us to have. Knowing who we are as brothers and sisters of Jesus and not seeking to have any other identity apart from one born of God, that is the end of true wisdom. That is what life above the sun seeks. We can enjoy the blessing that the Lord gives us in this life, but we don't live for gratification now. We live for the glory of what is to come. And if, anyone, if anyone has ever been around infants, little children, all the ones we had up here, you know that they have no ability to delay gratification, right? They want their needs and wants met right now, and they're going to cry and complain and whine and, and scream, stomp their feet, do everything they can until they get their way. Some of us do that still. But as they grow, as these children grow, they should be learning how to delay their satisfaction. That is a mark of maturity. Of course, our culture seeks to circumvent that, right? And wants to just have people living in the realm of instant gratification. But we can't fall for that lie. We can't fall for it. We've got to embrace wisdom's call to have the perspective, proper perspective on life, leaving in the moment, delaying gratification, recognizing that that is one of the ways that we grow and mature spiritually. And it's the ultimate gratification of spending eternity with Jesus. That's the greatest thing to live for. And of course, this brings us back to our two famous Italian artists, Raphael and Michelangelo. Now, one day, Raphael was approached by a very wealthy Italian merchant, and the merchant asked him to paint his portrait. And so, Raphael agreed to do so for 
10,000 gold pieces or whatever Italian currency was back then. I don't know. We're just going to say it was 10,000 gold pieces. It was 10,000. I just don't know the name of the currency. And so the merchant reluctantly agreed, and he began to stand for the portrait of Raphael. And it took several weeks for Raphael to complete this portrait. And when it was done, the merchant arrived to pick it up and was blown away by how amazing, beautiful it was. But the merchant was a greedy man. And he told Raphael, no one's going to pay for a portrait of me. Where else are you going to get anyone to buy this? I'll give you a thousand gold. And they started arguing over the price. And eventually, Raphael was the one who suggested that they go to a neutral mediator to decide what the value of the painting was. And so, the merchant thought this was a fine idea and suggested they go to Michelangelo, who he knew hated Raphael. And Raphael instantly agreed. He said, absolutely, Michelangelo. And so Michelangelo came to Raphael's studio, didn't say a word to Raphael, wouldn't even look at him, but went over and just looked at the painting. And he stared at it for minutes, looking at every brushstroke, looking over all of the colors, looking over the composition, how the light struck everything. And at the end of it, he turned to the merchant and he said, you are right. This painting is not worth 10,000 gold. And the merchant, of course, smiled exultantly. But then Michelangelo finished his statement and he said, this painting is worth nothing less than 30,000 gold. Pay the man. And he turned around and walked out. See, even though Michelangelo didn't live lavishly and foolishly like Raphael, he could still appreciate and recognize the good things in life. And Raphael, he knew that too. And even though he hated Michelangelo, he admired the wisdom of the man. Now, a couple years later, Raphael died at the young age of 37, filled with fear at what the end of his life meant. Meanwhile, Michelangelo, though he certainly had his struggles and failures, he continued to produce art, work of art after work of art, appreciating the blessing of life, but never being taken over by it. Eventually, as he approached death, Michelangelo said, neither painting nor sculpture will be able any longer to calm my soul. Now turned toward that divine love that opened his arms on the cross to take us in. And before he died at the age of 88, he gladly faced his exit into wisdom's embrace. It's my prayer for every single one of us tonight that we live our lives appreciating the good things in life and enjoying those things, but never being defined or controlled by them. By the grace of God, let's seek wisdom's perspective, not fearing death, 
and living with purpose and meaning as we fixate on the hope we have in Jesus. And as we gain that perspective by the grace of God, let's seek to live with wisdom's presence, embracing the moment, being a voice of truth in the midst of the lies of this world, and remaining constantly oriented to our master and king, smashing the funhouse mirrors of the world and living with a view above the sun. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.